Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. The suffering of others should make us feel ashamed. When we see a neighbor in need, in poor health, overcome by calamity, or besieged by violence, their burden is both a call to action and a check on our ego. Honestly, what right have we to complain about anything in the face of our neighbor's misfortune? Regrettably, we routinely appropriate such shame as a means of influence. Politicians spin suffering to promote anger and a spirit of self-righteousness, while victims point to misfortune as an excuse for cruelty. So what are we to make of the words of Jesus? Blessed are you when people insult you. Do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive commendation from God. According to St. Paul's sternly worded instruction, the question as to which suffering is worthy of Christ's blessing cannot be determined before the judgment. In Matthew, the criterion for this final test is not whether or not you suffered, but whether or not your suffering was for the right reason. You may want to hold off cashing in your blessings before the time. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, verses 9 to 12. You're listening to the Bible as literature. This is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 245 of the Bible as Literature podcast. We are now coming to the final set of three blessings in the Beatitudes in chapter 5 of the Gospel of Matthew and to Paul's teaching of the cross. One is challenged to submit to God's instruction, to seek God's instruction, and to begin to see and, of course, to act in the world under the control of God's instruction. And that's going to put you in a specific situation. The first section is about the inheritance of the kingdom of heaven and the comfort. The second set is about single-mindedly pursuing the righteousness of God and seeing God through understanding his instruction. And the central point of the mercy that one receives and the mercy that one gives as an obligation, as a duty, by receiving the inheritance, by receiving mercy. And now we move on to this third section where it's about the ultimate consequences of the pursuit of this righteousness. And of course, in verse 9, which is the first beatitude of the final triptych, it's the first blessing, 
we have this word, irinopios, which is the one who makes peace. And here, it's important to stress that we're not talking about peacemaking as in forming treaties and making diplomacy with enemies. We're talking about the peace that is established at the table fellowship when the father takes his seat because he establishes a rule. It is the peace, the shalom, that is established from the giving of the righteous instruction, which is what we're talking about. So if you submit to the Lord's instruction, his Torah, if you seek righteousness, if you seek the kingdom in his scroll, you will become one who sows the seed, as Paul explains. You will become a sower. And to the extent that you are sowing the instruction, you are making the father of Jesus present at the head of the table wherever you are. And this establishes peace. Father Paul often makes the connection between Irini in Greek with Shalom in Hebrew. Obviously, he's not the only one who does that, but he takes it one step further to look at the etymology of Shalom, which is Shilem, which is to complete. The one who creates the completeness. Peace and completeness are related in Hebrew because when things are complete, that's when they're settled. That's when things are the way they ought to be. So the one who causes things to be settled in this way, those are the children of God because they are the ones who are following the Father's instruction. To be a child of God means to be one of his household. But we talked a long time ago, Father, about how a Roman household is a family business. Just like an employee in a company is not going to serve the company well if he has his own business plan, someone who goes about doing the work of the household, of the father's household, with his own plan, is not going to serve the household. And as we mentioned in the last episode, the one who is not clear in his thinking, in single-mindedly pursuing the righteousness of God, is going to muck things up. The purity, the cleanness, the completeness, the peace, the one who does those things, those are the children of the Father who follow the will of the one who begot them. To be a son of God, here it's very specific in the Greek, eos, which is a son, has nothing to do with you personally. This is not an ontological phraseology. You don't become anything. You act a certain way. You act a certain way. If you adopt a stranger and teach him or her how to act, they will become your son or daughter on the basis of how they act. They reflect your teaching. The father establishes peace at his table through the rule of his instruction, and those who heed that rule are his sons and daughters round about his table. The Greek is clear. It's not blessed are the peaceful. It's the peacemakers. They're the ones who do the things, the ones who create the peace. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And here we see now the interjection of the cross. We said in last week's episode how God comes to you through your enemy so that you would see your enemy as a manifestation of God's instruction, which makes out of the curse a blessing. So you are blessed when you are persecuted for the sake of the righteous teaching, not the sake of righteousness de facto, because then you become someone with a victim complex. You're doing it the right way and everyone's attacking you. No, you're not doing anything. The teaching is righteous 
and it's doing something, it's using you to do it. And if you happen to be persecuted because the teaching is doing something with you, you will be blessed, which means that the curse is a blessing. This is a much more psychologically sane way of living. Instead of trying to figure out why did this happen to me? Why is this going on? That line of questioning is egotistical, self-serving, and destructive because it bears no fruit. But if you take everything as the will of God, all you have left is to understand how to improve your behavior based on the instruction of the will of God. Remember, we talked last week about how the word controls what you see. When the word controls what you see and how you see and what you see in the world, then everything can be used to make you wise in God's wisdom. That's what it means to see God. If that's all you want is this righteousness, then, as we said before, then you'll be filled. It's not, no, I want a certain flavor of righteousness, or I don't feel as satisfied with this righteousness. No, if you hunger and thirst after righteousness with your very being, then you may be persecuted for this very same righteousness that you hungered and thirsted after. So you're going to be persecuted for the very bread that you eat and the water you drink. If you have a dog, all he's going to care about is if you feed it and you give it water. You can beat it in the meantime, but when it comes mealtime, it's going to want its food again from the very person who beat it up. When you hunger and thirst after righteousness, as soon as you get your serving of righteousness, you come back for more, for more righteousness from the one who provides that for you. Whatever you have to go through to get it. Whatever you have to go through to get it. This is the point. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He brought this up again before. And that was for the poor in spirit. The ones who were lacking. The ones who were dependent. So you need the righteousness. You're starving for the righteousness. You're parched for the righteousness. Is getting to the righteousness difficult? Is there potentially a bad result from your seeking it? Maybe. But because you're clear in mind... You don't veer from the path. You stay on that path, even if you are persecuted for that pursuit of righteousness. This next verse, Richard, cracks me up because I think about churches and all the ways in which pastors across the country try to be clever with their church signs. They try to say things that are inviting and interesting, or you go to church websites and they have vision statements and invitations and all this nonsense. I'd like to see someone use this as their church sign. Just listen to this text. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. What kind of an invitation is this? What kind of a blessing is this? Hey, this is great. You're insulted and cursed and mistreated and lied about because of me. That's wonderful. How is this a blessing? It's a blessing because that means that you were making peace with God's instruction and people were rebelling against that instruction and you were caught in the crossfire. And that's a blessing because that means that your life is being exploited for a godly and useful purpose. I know that sounds terrible, but you're exploited by all the companies that sell you junk wouldn't you rather be exploited by your enemies who manifest the face of God to you as judgment for instruction unto life? 
I know that's a mouthful, but you have to say it 50 different ways from Scripture until people realize that if you are baptized, if you are circumcised in the foreskin of your heart, you have no enemies, which means even those who lie about you and persecute you are your brothers and sisters. And this comes from seeking that righteousness and being filled with the instruction. Because I've heard this verse twisted in wicked ways, as if any time someone disagrees with me, blessed am I, because I'm pursuing righteousness, according to my own imagination. We must be right because they're not letting us put up our Merry Christmas signs at the mall because we are cursed for his sake. No! What has God to do with your shopping mall? What are you talking about? Or so-and-so must be righteous because the lying media has been saying mean things about him. Then he must be righteous. Did the Lord of hosts, the King of heaven and earth, send his son to be crucified so that this teaching could be delivered first to the apostles, then to the nations, and last of all to you outside of the canonical story? Did he go through all of that for the sake of a shopping mall? What is wrong with people? You're not a victim. Not only are you not the protagonist, you're not even in the story. It is the teaching that is persecuted so that you would shake hands and embrace the persecutor. We have to emphasize one more time this last phrase, enekenemu, for my sake, not for your sake. If they persecute you for your sake, you deserved it. And if they persecute you for the sake of Jesus who is the one who manifests the teaching of his father, then you're blessed. That doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be less persecuted. It means you're blessed for the sake of those persecutions. Those persecutions are a blessing to you. So either you're full of baloney and you're being persecuted for you shooting off your mouth, or you're being persecuted because you're speaking the teaching of the Lord. And as we'll read further on in this Sermon on the Mount, in this teaching on the Mount, God will know the difference because only God knows what's in your heart. Not all suffering is martyrdom. Human beings talk about their difficulties as though they're martyrs, but that's not true. As you said, it is specifically when you suffer for the sake of Christ. That's a blessing because that means you taught the righteous instruction. But there's another dimension here because when you suffer, whatever the cause you have no right to gossip. It might be. You don't know because the Lord hasn't judged your suffering yet. It could be a martyrdom. Even though we know you could be suffering because you're foolish, it could be a martyrdom and we'll find out on that day. So in the meantime, you can't then become upset at the people who insult you or persecute you. You can't gossip about them. If you complain and gossip about them or fight back in any way, then we know that even if it was a martyrdom, it's voided because now in your action, you're rejecting the teaching of righteousness that you were supposed to bring. Because you're not showing mercy, even though you were one who received mercy. Scripture has you by the horns. There's nothing you can do. You are not righteous because the judgment hasn't come yet, but it doesn't mean that you should give up exactly because you don't know what's going to happen in the judgment. So whether it's your fault or their fault is immaterial, you are not allowed to conduct yourself incorrectly. There's no escape. And the judgment is according to how you respond to the mercy that you've been given. In the meantime, it's better for you to assume that you're suffering because it's your fault, which is what scripture is saying about judgment anyways. 
So just accept it as such so that God can give you instruction. Don't be like Job. Do not be like Job. Do not make yourself an adversary of God when he comes against you. Just submit and all will be well with you. Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now in Matthew, I want to say something about this word in Greek, uranos. It's not heaven, capital H, the way people talk about it as a geographic place. It's the heavens. It's the thing that's out of your reach. It's the place where you can't build anything. We're not talking about Star Wars in the 70s and the 80s where you had cloud cities. There are no cloud cities in the ancient world. You can't build on the clouds. The heavens are something not only intangible, but beyond your reach. So effectively, Jesus is saying the reward isn't the kind of reward that you want to put in your pocket. He's not saying there's no reward. He's saying very clearly there is a reward, but it's beyond your reach. You can't grasp it. It's up in the heavens. There are no gliders or airplanes when Matthew was written. In effect, he's telling you there is no reward. But like all things in Scripture... While he may be saying to you plainly, there is no reward, that doesn't mean there isn't a reward. It's just not a reward in the way that you think about rewards. In the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. What are you upset about? Because all of the prophets who, like you, were unrighteous, to the extent that they delivered the righteous instruction, were rejected by their own friends, their own kinsmen, their own countrymen. So why would you expect any less? We can see the reward that the prophets received. They got written up in a book that nobody reads. That's the reward of the prophets. Their teaching was written down for a few to read and the rest of the humanity to ignore. This is your reward. And again, I want to reiterate the wicked interpretation we get, which is if I am being persecuted, then I have a spot waiting for me in heaven. No, no, no. It's how and why are you being persecuted? Are you being persecuted for Christ's sake or for your own sake? And God alone knows the human heart. God alone will judge based on what he knows. So be very careful. I don't know what the reward is, but I know that when you honor those prophets by preaching this teaching, there is a return on their investment. There is a return on the price in spilt blood for the sake of this instruction. So your point, Richard, is insightful. The prophets and the prophet that comes to mind is Havakuk because he died up to his eyeballs in adversity and suffering and gloom, but he did not lose hope. He kept hope against all hope. Remember this beautiful saying of our tradition, keep your mind in hell, but do not despair. And that's why I believe Havakuk is mentioned in the Paschal Canon, because he refused to give up hope against all hope. And his hope is fulfilled in the raising of Christ by the right hand of God through the Spirit. So when we talk about a reward, we can't be egocentric and think about seeing our grandparents when we die. It's not about us. The stakes are much higher. Havakuk wasn't worried about seeing his grandma when he died. The proposition of the hymnographer in this case, which is outside of scripture, but is scriptural. The proposition is that his hope 
was in the victory of God's instruction over and against not only Israel, but all the nations. And that is what is represented when the tomb is opened and the light of God's instruction is carried into the world. And what the prophets are always praying for, for Israel, is that God would show mercy to Israel. In spite of the suffering that Israel was going through, the prophets always prayed for mercy to be granted to the people. This is a word that we don't hear anymore. If you go on Facebook, you are going to see people praying for mercy for their enemies. They want to figure out ways to bring them down, whether they want to bring them down through violence or through a vote. They always want to assert their power over their enemy. They don't want to show mercy to their enemy. They do not pray for God to show mercy on their enemy. They pray to God that God will bring them down, forgetting the mercy that God showed to them by not bringing them down. Matthew will teach us very soon, Richard, that when you pray, you should simply say what we now refer to as the Lord's Prayer. And the cornerstone of that prayer is the asking for mercy and forgiveness and the request that God would delay his test for us. That's how you should pray. You shouldn't ask for anything except the daily bread. But the daily bread is the daily reading from Scripture. Remember, Matthew is teaching you to ask for food and ask for drink from the scroll itself. So I don't know how people pray anymore and ask for anything except mercy. The most beautiful prayer is the simple one, Kirialeson, Lord have mercy. I don't hear Christians talking this way anymore. I hear them talking in their prayers about other people's sins. And everybody's guilty of this. I've seen it even in sloppily written prayers in our own church, where we practically talk about what the other guy is doing wrong. That's not how the traditional, the canonical prayers are not written that way. The canonical prayers always talk about our sins, not anyone else's sins. It's all about what we've done wrong, because that's the only hope. That's the only way to be correct scripturally. Otherwise, you're going to suffer, and you're going to think that you're a prophet, and you're going to start painting icons of yourself, and then we're in big trouble. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.